Hello, now, uh, welcome to this evening's session of the China Research Group. This is an event that I am not hosting, and we are very, very lucky to have Gideon Rachman as our host this evening. Now, I know he doesn't need any real introduction to an audience like this, but he is the Chief Affairs Foreign Affairs Commentator at the Financial Times. Uh, he's also uh, a very, uh, very astute observer, uh, not just of the world, but particularly of China. And so uh, we're very grateful that he's made time this evening. We're very lucky also to have uh, Dr. Evan Medeiros of the Penner, the Penner Family Chair in Asia Studies at Georgetown and a former Asia Pacific advisor to President Obama. And we're also lucky to have Jude Malchette, who is the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And I'd just like to say that our selection of guests is uh, so completely fantastic. Uh, that one of them, I'm afraid, is not here today because he's already been appointed to the Biden administration. So uh, I hope very much that this uh, session on uh, China and the Biden administration will prove uh, enlightening uh, to all of us. I'm sure it will. Gideon, thank you very much. Over to you. Tom, thanks very much. It's, uh, it's actually a, a, a privilege to be able to do this at this incredibly interesting time in uh, US-Chinese relations, uh, the most important relationship really in the world now and diplomatically. So let's get straight to it. Um, Evan, you did the job, uh, the China job in the Obama White House. You know the people very well who, who are going to be doing the same jobs uh, for Joe Biden. There's been a big shift, obviously, under President Trump. Do you think that that move towards a more um, confrontational policy with China will broadly persist? How much continuity is there going to be with what Trump did and how much change? Well, there, there will be both, Gideon. Um, we've, we've already um, seen early indications of where the Biden team is going in the testimony of Tony Blinken, uh, Avril Haines, even Janet Yellen, they uh, consistently use the framework of strategic competition uh, and they focus on a variety of different economic, diplomatic and national security challenges associated with China. So it's very clear that the strategic competition frame is going to be um, the frame. The question is, is what will be the policy expression of strategic competition? And I think that remains an open question. And there are a variety of issues that the team is going to have to make some early decisions on. Questions about first communication and dialogue, right? How are they going to talk with the Chinese? Because unlike the Trump team, they don't believe that dialogue and communication is a, a form of appeasement. So how are they going to uh, build the architecture of communication with China? Uh, number two, uh, the Biden team has uh, talked about cooperation. And so the question is, uh, or the questions are, when, where, and how are they going to cooperate? And when they face trade-offs between competitive strategies and cooperative strategies, uh, how do they adjudicate those differences? Uh, number three, where do values sit in the US-China equation? Uh, the Trump team spoke, a, sort of spoke out of both sides of their mouths on this. Uh, Trump notably uh, didn't care about values and reportedly, according to John Bolton, uh, told Xi Jinping, do what you need to do with the Uyghurs and we don't care about Hong Kong. Uh, whereas Pompeo um, and some folks in the White House had a very different approach. Um, Tony Blinken in his testimony uh, 
already called out China for genocide uh, for its treatment of the Uyghurs. And so the third question really is to what extent will the Biden team frame the US-China relationship as a systemic values-based rivalry? Um, uh, fourthly, economic policy. What are they gonna do with the tariffs? What are they gonna do with this massive sanctions regime, these big lists um, of Chinese companies who are under restrictions uh, for US companies to do business with? And then more generally, what is the Biden approach to tolerance for risk and friction in the relationship? Uh, to what extent are they gonna be willing to assume some risk, tolerate friction uh, as a way to pursue strategic competition? Um, I don't wanna prejudice the outcome. Uh, I think the Biden team is, I know the Biden team having worked with them in the Obama White House, whether it's Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, uh, Kurt Campbell uh, are all very experienced when it comes to dealing with China. They're very shrewd and I'm confident that they're going to make um, good judgments uh, and judgments that are less about confronting China and more about competing. Right, and Jude, how do you think they'll be seeing this in Beijing? I mean, I, I remember myself being there in 2016 ahead of the Clinton-Trump election and getting a strong sense that the Chinese basically preferred the idea of Trump. They thought a Republican will be more transactional, will be less uh, focused on human rights. Uh, I guess in many respects, Trump administration was a you know, nasty surprise for them. The trade war was tougher than they anticipated. Um, the rhetoric was very extreme. Do you think they will welcome now the return of the Democrats to the White House or will they be wary because, because of this new emphasis on human rights and so on? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I should say at the outset, I think Beijing is clearly much better calibrated for the incoming Biden administration than it was for the Trump administration. As, as you said, there was a bit of wishful thinking um, in Beijing, but frankly, a lot of us were surprised at, at how the course of the four years went under Trump and, and what the actual practice of foreign policy would, would look like. Um, so certainly Beijing now, and again, Evan and I are, are on lots of these sort of track 1.5s and you, you talk with a lot of interlocutors in Beijing. And I think for the better part of, you know, three to six months as they've been trying to ferret out what a possible Biden administration would look like, they're, I think they're clear on this idea that rivalry or what we call strategic competition, but from Beijing's perspective, rivalry is the norm now. And what Beijing is trying to do is find ways that it can essentially put a floor underneath the deterioration of relations um, by, for example, leveraging market access. It's obviously done this quite successfully recently with the CAI, but leveraging market access and also holding out the possibility of cooperation on you know, big meaty issues like, uh, like climate change, but they're under no illusion that the, the debate in the United States has fundamentally shifted on China. And I should say, um, China, although it's having this near-term tactical uh, discussion of how it wants to deal with a Biden administration, um, you know, Gideon, if I can quote from your, your recent column, I, I think your idea that the disarray of the United States as being China's opportunity, we need to understand that from Be Beijing's perspective, um, it is a rising power. The United States is a, a structurally declining hegemon. Um, and so Beijing has also had a, I think, a permanent sea change in how it's thinking about the global balance of power. If you read commentary that's been coming out of Beijing strategic thinkers over the past six months, they've been laser-like clear 
that they are seeing a, a um, forget about Trump, forget about the Capitol riots. This is all part of a, a broader power shift that is enduring and structural. And so I think the other thing we need to recognize is that we're going to be dealing with a different Beijing uh, moving forward, one that is not only holding up dysfunctionality in the United States for propaganda value, China organically believes, or I should say the Xi Jinping administration organically believes that its governance system is superior to the West. And so if 2008 spelled the end of uh, sort of holding out the United States neoliberal economic system as a model, um, clearly the past four years are, are the final death knell of Beijing looking to the West for uh, ideas on how it should structure its governance system. Xi Jinping is pedaled to the metal that they have found the secret sauce of uh, a governance system that combines uh, state and market uh, autonomy and centralization, a uh, party and state. And what they're trying to do now is refine it. They're not looking out to the outside world for answers anymore. Right. So, Evan, I guess that points to the fact that, you know, obviously we started with where the change is, which is in Washington and uh, how will Biden adapt policies. But of course, as as you know, this isn't a static picture and they could get some nasty surprises coming at them from changes in Beijing. And I guess the one thing we've all been focused on for some years is the threat of Chinese action over Taiwan, uh, military confrontation there, or more incremental stuff in the South China Sea. I mean, you, you, you kept started with a list of, of concerns the Biden team will be uh, worried about, but how do you think on this, the most basic and the most dangerous issues, how are they gonna play the military side of it? How is the Biden team gonna play a military side? Is that your question? Yeah, I mean, for example, Trump has radicalized policy a little bit on Taiwan. Uh, will they dial it back? You know, uh, are they gonna continue with phonops in South China Sea, more or less? So on the military dimension, I would expect a, um, a more sound activist and creative approach. In other words, the Trump team didn't really invest systematically in building out new concepts of operations, acquiring new capabilities, beginning to think about operating with allies and partners in new and different ways. And in other words, the United States faces a very serious challenge uh, in PLA modernization, especially within the first island chain in East Asia, right? Um, because of the modernization that the, you know, the PLA has um, undertaken. And as a result, the DOD, the Defense Department, needs to really accelerate its shift away from a ground force-centric, counterinsurgency-centric military to a military that's much more focused on projecting and sustaining air and naval power um, for an extended period of time. Because that's what it's going to take if, uh, if the US uh, is going to be able to continue to deter uh, Chinese aggression in and around Taiwan and more broadly. And so I uh, expect a Defense Department that is going to be laser-like focused on that particular priority um, in terms of uh, acquisitions, in terms of new thinking about uh, strategy and doctrine. Um, you may have noticed uh, that the Congress recently passed something called the Pacific Defense Initiative, um, which is sort of a blueprint of sorts for, um, uh, based on the, I believe it was called the European Defense Initiative, which 
uh, the US adopted after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the whole idea behind it is to um, mandate the acquisitions of a bunch of different capabilities and studies uh, to address this whole issue of PLA modernization. So I expect um, the uh, Defense Department do much more in the, in the, in the DOD realm. I'm sorry, in the, in, in the, the, to address the China threat. Right, and Jude, I mean, how do you think the Chinese are likely to play that particular set of issues? I mean, their rhetoric on Taiwan is sometimes pretty ferocious, but, and as you say, there does seem to be a mind shift towards the sense that America really is in decline and this is their moment. Do you think they, they, they might take risky actions or ultimately will they continue to, to exercise restraint? Yeah, I think um, while we've seen a more aggressive China, especially under Xi Jinping, we've not seen a suicidal China. Um, China has done best by, you know, as, as uh, uh, you know, was it Lenin said, uh, uh, probe uh, with the bayonet, if you, if you feel flesh push, if you feel steel, you, you retreat. Um, so, you know, some of these questions have come about, um, is Xi Jinping feeling his oats or is he going to miscalculate on the speed or the velocity of American decline and take a risky action, for example, to invade Taiwan? Um, I think that's a I think that's a zero possibility. Beijing's operative strategy right now is to keep Taiwan from going independent, not to invade and occupy. Because again, Be Beijing's smart enough to have observed what happens uh, for occupying powers, and so the, the single biggest factor keeping Beijing from invading and occupying Taiwan for forget some of the concerns about how its force will fight in 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 actual fact, having not had any military conflict since, since 1979. Beijing's very much concerned about what does day two look like? You know, you've, you've taken over a country, you've decimated its economy. Um, uh, what have you essentially got other than an island that you're now going to have to occupy? You will have deep sixed uh, your, your, your relations with, with most countries. So um, I think something else we need to be prepared for is Xi Jinping is likely, well, undoubtedly going to take a third term as general secretary next year at the 20th Party Congress. Um, we have to open the aperture for possible behavior of the Chinese state after Xi Jinping is further ensconced as a singular figure in Chinese politics. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw under Mao was uh, uh, put aside for a moment some of the mid 60s radicalism, uh, the unrivaled power that Mao had also allowed him to take fairly bold initiatives. For example, uh, um, inviting Nixon to visit the country because he didn't worry about political opposition. So um, Xi Jinping is a fairly um, calculated conservative figure. Um, Xi Jinping, I think, has done a very effective job in his tenure in power of pushing out the boundaries of Chinese influence, but in ways that are very salami, salami slicing like without really bringing on the full antagonism of countries like the United States. Um, but I see that uh, you know, moving forward, I actually might expect a more cautious approach from the Xi administration as it attempts to essentially consolidate and hold its gains. It's not looking to pass its influence um, you know, into the Atlantic Ocean here. And so um, I think we have oftentimes too much of a straight linear progression of Chinese aggression and expecting it's gonna end up on the moon. Uh, but in fact- Can I, I, think can I come in here, Jude? Yeah. Just, I wanna I want double tap Jude's point because um, Chinese assertions and aggression often go in cycles. And I think we're about to enter a very interesting cycle. Jude and I have talked about this before. There are three key dates coming up 
that create incentives for the Chinese to focus more domestically and as a result to avoid um, external uh, instability. So the first is in July of this year is the 100th anniversary of the uh, founding of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, right? Huge political event for Xi Jinping. Um, and as Jude, you know, I'm gonna borrow a phrase from Jude, it's sort of the kickoff of Xi Jinping's re-election campaign uh, in terms of its significance. Uh, date number two, the Winter Olympics in China in February of 2022, right? The Olympics as an international event that China hosts is always a caution inducing event. In, in fact, if you look back at 2008 when it hosted the Sumper Olympics, you know, the Chinese sort of opened up momentarily to present a more positive image to the world. And then of course, as Jude pointed out in the fall of 2022, you have the next party Congress in which Xi Jinping is trying to pull off the hat trick of you know, a third term, unlike, you know, basically any Chinese leader in the reform era. That's a, those are three very uh, significant domestic challenges. And so I think I could imagine the Chinese thinking like, hey, we don't need to pick fights with anybody more in the region. Now, that doesn't mean that if, not, if, um, if the Chinese are provoked, that they won't respond confidently and forcefully uh, but I think you need to look at macro incentives. And as Jude said, Xi Jinping is not reckless, right? He's not Putin. He's very careful, he's very calculating, and he's very attuned to his domestic political and his domestic economic needs. So it's possible that we could be entering into a different cycle, worth consideration. Yeah, just uh, to push back then, I mean, for the sake of argument, if he's so calculating and careful, why did they kill Indian troops in the Himalayas? Why have they been bullying Australia, which is quite a connected country in this uh, flamboyant way? Why have they upped the rhetoric so much in the past year? I mean, how do you explain the past year? How does one fit you know, your relatively reassuring words with, with the pattern of the last year and Hong Kong, of course? So to be clear, I'm not meant to be reassuring in the sense that I don't see a challenge from China. Uh, my point is simply, we need to understand the nature of the challenge we're dealing with. And I think when you look at China's behavior with India and Australia, they basically calculated uh, the cost is worth the benefit, yeah. right? In other words, um, we can provoke Australia and it's not really gonna cost us that, that much. And I would ask you, what, what cost exactly has yeah. China paid? And you know, they calculate that cost by looking at uh, by taking into account domestic politics. Um, so of course, all of us in the West sit here and think, God, you know, how awful Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy is and they're alienating the rest of the world. But amid all of that, Europe turned around and signed a uh, investment agreement with them after the Chinese rope-a-dope them for seven years. So if you're China, you're thinking, I actually really haven't paid that much of a cost. Uh, and the upside benefit, we believe, is pretty substantial. Jude, what do you think? Yeah, I, uh, sorry, not, not that so Evan and I just go in a circle, foot stomping <laughs> what each other say, but um, I actually think this is just such a, a crucial, um, I think this is a crucial insight. And if I can go further, I, I think there are two countries in the world that don't spend much time thinking about what the outside world thinks about them. That's the United States and China. Um, these are, these are two countries where if you look at domestic discussion um, and, and debate, it is almost exclusively focused on what's in our best interest, what's happening within our borders, what do we need to secure our own national interests. 
Um, I 100% agree with Evan's point here that if I'm Xi Jinping and I'm looking, I, you know, and you can see this inflected in the giddiness of his New Year's address, um, he's thinking, how am I so lucky that I just got through 2020? I essentially won the year. Um, we have we started out in, in January with, frankly, idiots like myself saying that this was going to spell the collapse of the Communist Party because, you know, COVID-19. Chernob China's Chernobyl. You know, remember, uh, remember that one, Gideon? And, you know, we'd move through the summer where, where we're, we're, of course, talking about China encircled by the United States and this rising tide of, you know, mix my metaphors, united front against it. Uh, as, you, as Evan said, wolf warrior diplomacy, we can read the articles through the summer saying that this is essentially, you know, China bearing its fangs and the world is reacting accordingly. Then we get RCEP, then we get CAI, and then we get China coming in at, at two plus percent growth and 6.5% and, uh, for Q4. And now looking at growing 6% of the year, you know, as Evan said, look at the year Xi Jinping has in front of him. Um, he's got a lot to be buoyant about. 100th anniversary of the party, which is a big middle finger to everyone who's been saying Leninist systems are inherently made of, you know, feet of clay, Winter Olympics. And so I think the, the real lesson here is, gee, what, what accounts for Chinese aggression? The real lesson is, um, how come we have not been finding ways to impose costs on, on Beijing behavior in meaningful ways that get them to, to rethink their behavior? Um, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, um, these to them are domestic matters. Um, I think we also need to be able to start segmenting, uh, differentiating, for example, uh, border territorial disputes with India from uh, economic coercion in Australia, from Hong Kong, from Xinjiang. We often put these in one bucket, but all of these have different calculations for Beijing. There are some of these where we are going to be able to impose meaningful costs. For example, Australia, and we can think of ways in which we can say to Beijing, um, you know, this is what there's discussions about. Do we have a new economic NATO, for example? There are others like Xinjiang where we found that the, the driving motivating force behind that is so visceral and deep within Chinese fears about political instability. We need to be prepared that that is going to be a, just an infinitely harder challenge to, to impose meaningful meaningful costs on. But to me, the big takeaway is, you know, we don't understand enough about where the pressure points are in, in Beijing's internal logic to be able to impose costs. Evan just did a great job of showing why, if you actually understand domestic politics in China, there's an 18-month window now where if we were smart, we'd be thinking about how do we leverage those, those domestic concerns that Xi Jinping has over 100th anniversary of the party, the Olympics, uh, and his 20th Party Congress. How do we salami slice uh, against China leveraging right. those domestic instabilities? Right. Do we now, I, I think the, the question is, can the US and its allies start assuming risk on issues that the Chinese uh, don't like us pushing the envelope on, knowing that they don't, they're really not going to react that harshly? Sorry, Gideon. Okay, Evan, last question for you before I uh, let far more important people than me uh, ask questions to various MPs and so on. But um, you know, you mentioned the kind of dismay uh, or implied the dismay in Washington that the EU signed this uh, investment deal with China. So as you talk about applying pressure to China or looking for their pressure points, what role for allies? Will the Biden team now try to bring the EU on board or may they indeed look now to, to London or to, to other other places, Delhi probably, uh, as as perhaps more reliable partners in in trying to frame a, a global response to to China. Right. So to me, Gideon, this is probably the single most important question 
uh, in um, facing America's China policy, right? How do you operationalize this notion of collective action? And it's very simple to cite it. Uh, it's very difficult to turn into reality. And the logic of it is simply that uh, when you have um, a collective voice, uh, you have the opportunity to name and shame China, sort of demonstrating to China that they are out of step with an international consensus, right? So it's using at first, uh, sort of at the first level, international opprobrium. Historically, that has had some effect on China. I think it's declining, but there is that. But more importantly, it, to Jude's point, it's about affecting the Chinese cost-benefit calculation um, by denying them access to various things they might want, markets, capital, technology, right? And the US used to have the pride of place in that um, either denying or conferring access uh, simply because the US market was so important to China and America was so important to China's conception of itself globally. That has changing as China has really diversified uh, its sources of security, prosperity, um, and validation. And that's why the theory is that the United States in concert with European friends, uh, both the UK and Europe, um, can begin to um, affect that cost-benefit calculation. Uh, the, the obviously, that's been challenged by China's 11th hour offer with the EU, right? It, it, it punctures at least initially, uh, you know, the ability to sort of quickly operationalize America-EU cooperation. But I, I still think there's a real opening for the US and the UK, right? In the sense that um, our perceptions of the challenge, um, uh, a convergence in the toolkit willing to apply to it, a convergence in our politics. Um, and, you know, I think I, I would like to see this become one of the channels by, with, by which Joe Biden and Boris Johnson begin to uh, build their relationship is working together on the China challenge. So I think Washington and London have a fantastic opportunity in front of them. Okay, just a quick follow up before I go to Neil O'Brien MP, but what realistically can, can London bring to the party? I mean, militarily, America's a huge presence in the Pacific, the UK isn't. Um, the economic relationship between America and China has its own dynamic. It's a much broader relationship than the one the UK has with China. What, what actually, I mean, apart from rhetorical support, maybe that's enough, uh, would, would Britain be able to provide? Well, I think there are a variety of different baskets. Um, you know, diplomatically coordinating our approaches on major challenges like Hong Kong and Xinjiang, which we're already doing. I think we're uh, witnessing right now the emergence of a very interesting Anglosphere, America, Britain, Canada, and Australia, uh, coordinating visa policies, creating opportunities for those in Hong Kong that want to come to the United States, UK, or including studying. Um, you know, as the Biden administration looks to rebuild America's profile in international institutions like the UN Human Rights Commission, uh, etc., I think there's a lot of space for uh, US-UK cooperation um, on technology policy and making sure that uh, our economies uh, retain our leads in critical technology. So coordinating on export control technologies, um, I think that's another important area. Uh, militarily, uh, 
obviously the United States, because of the nature of its substantial interests, as well as its capabilities, will always be the dominant security actor among the Anglosphere. Um, but I think consistent demonstrations of support by London that, you know, like that carrier operation in the South China Sea, uh, it may be symbolic, but those sorts of symbols matter, especially when, you know, Britain remains a member of unique agreements like the Five Power Agreement, uh, operating air power off the Malaysian Peninsula. So, uh, and then of course there's, you know, economic policy and coordinating economic policy to push Beijing for a more level playing field. Now, the challenge with all of these is, uh, is that there are costs associated with them. And uh, are um, uh, Washington and London going to be aligned on absorbing those costs? I think that's gonna be a real challenge. Uh, but I'd like to see the conversation begin. I think it needs to begin at the top level. And when I was at the National Security Council and met regularly with my uh, friends and colleagues in the foreign office, I can tell you among the China specialists, there was an, and this was, you know, this was years ago, an enormous amount of expertise and support for a greater degree of coordination and collaboration. So uh, I see the upside as very substantial. Okay, uh, let me bring in um, some of the audience. Uh, I think you can probably ask the question in person uh, rather than me having to relay it. Neil, O'Brien, do, do you want to come in? Well, thank you, all three of you. Fantastic discussion. I, I wondered how our panelists read the intervention to announce sanctions on some, but not all of the uh, people involved in China policy from the last administration on inauguration day. Uh, I wondered, um, you know, particularly given that the sanctions apply to the families of those people and to any companies that they're interacting with, what that tells us about the way the CCP leadership are reading the West. And I also wondered, I'm sorry to miss the very start of your discussion, if in, the, in terms of the people who are coming in to the administration or expected to come in um, and the people around it, if there were any obvious kind of um, differences of emphasis uh, between different people who are coming in about the way to handle this, you know, with, within the Trump administration, you could identify certain people who were kind of um, had a particular take and other people who had a different take. And I don't know whether there are um, people who are coming to this question in the new administration with kind of clear track record? Maybe not, I don't know. Um, maybe I'll just take a, a, a quick whack at the sanctions, sanctions question. Um, so I, just two thoughts on this. One is Beijing has essentially had one playbook um, throughout the, the Trump, um, uh, Trump administration, which was a, a, a lowercase t tit for tat uh, response wherein anytime the US would take an action, Beijing would have a corresponding action, which, which came just up to the line, but was very careful not to escalate. And this of course was because Beijing was trying to impose some sort of cost on the US, also signaled domestically to uh, Chinese audiences that it wasn't essentially laying down for this. So uh, one thing is I think just contextualizing, notice that these sanctions were on, when they were on their way out the door, to a group of officials who uh, I don't think there's any love lost in the incoming administration about how these folks handled much of the much of the China question. Um, of course, as as we were joking before, um, I don't think John Bolton had vacation plans in China anytime soon. The interesting twist, of course, on this is that Beijing is is trying to essentially say, but you're also not going to get your cushy gig consulting or as a on a, on a board. Uh, for any company that's doing business in China. 
sure, that, that's, that's a cost. Um, that's a cost. But I think um, this still, to me, is very much within Beijing's playbook of very careful not to escalate, um, but also signal that, that um, it signals some degree uh, of resolve. Final, just strategic point, um, Beijing clearly sees um, uh, sanctions as being a, a, a tool in the toolkit now. Um, for the United States, I worry that, that sanctions are the new tariffs. Um, sanctions are just a really great way for us to um, feel like we can surgically, uh, surgically pinpoint a, a target. But of course, sanctions uh, matter so long as the United States has a dominant position in, in sort of critical choke points, especially in financial markets. One of the things Beijing is furiously doing right now is trying to create a parallel set of financial institutions such that it, it can lessen the price uh, or the impact of, of US sanctions. We still have dominant authority here. This is still a powerful, painful tool. One of the things we might want to start thinking about moving forward, though, are we over-relying on sanctions? And, and do, we, do we want to sort of save the sanctions ammunition and not overuse these? Because frankly, it's not just China. Our, our allies and partners are getting frustrated by uh, some of the knock-on effects of, of the U.S. over-reliance over on sanctions. Sorry, I went past my remit there. No, but... no I think that, that was a very good reply, interesting reply. I mean, Evan, just briefly before I bring in Damien Green, do you think America is over-reliant on sanctions? And do you think China might be able to, to find ways around these, what look like very, very powerful financial sanctions at the moment, which forced Carrie Lam, for example, to be paid in cash? Yeah, so I'm, as a former... Um, White House official, I'm deeply concerned about these sanctions uh, that the Chinese levied on the 28 US officials. And I think they're highly destructive because, you know, of course they're um, at, at first glance, they're about punishing the Trump team, but they're also, I think about sort of cautioning anybody else going forward, right? About taking an action that could affect them, their family, you know, or their future. Right. I mean, I'm a professor at Georgetown. Does that mean that if I go into the administration, the Chinese sanction me and go back to Georgetown, that suddenly Georgetown can't deal with anybody in China because of that sanction? So I think this is a classic example where collective action and hearing a rejection of these by the international community, including, you know, many Western democracies, London, Britain, France, etc. I think is imperative. The Chinese need to know that they have stepped over the line and that this kind of action is not going to be acceptable because here's the thing. They start with the United States and guess who's next? Yeah. Uh, Damien Green, MP. Good, okay. Um, thanks very much both. Um, a, a sort of American question, if you like, is do you think the, the Biden administration will want to set up new institutions of democracies to sort of encircle uh, China. So not just the traditional NATO allies, but also Japan, Australia, maybe Taiwan, so on. Um, so that the, it, you know, it's, it's bigger than, than the traditional West, if you like. Do you think they'll, they'll set any value for that? And as it were, the, on, on the Chinese side, clearly their economic imperialism over the past decade has been tremendously successful. Um, and you know, we've talked about the, the fact that the EU is still willing to sign investment deals with them despite everything that's happened uh, over the past 18 months. Um, and yet there is now some feeling, um, particularly in, in poorer countries, that the Belt and Road Initiative just means long-term debt bondage. 
um, do the, does the Chinese administration recognize any problems with the model of how they have imposed themselves successfully around the world economically uh, over the past decade? Do, do you wanna... I'll take the... Oh, oh sorry, either of you. Hold on. Well, why don't I take the first one and I'll let you take the second one. So on democracy coalitions, uh, Damien, I think you're absolutely right. Um, that the Biden administration is gonna lean into um, working more with democratic friends. And that's not just in Europe, it includes in Asia. So President uh, Biden has talked about convening a conference on democracies globally. And a big component of that is working more with the big democracies in Asia, India, Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia, and even Indonesia. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind, this is not about containing China. I don't think that uh, containing China is either feasible or desirable, but that doesn't mean that this is not about shaping the environment in which China makes decisions, right? And for example, shutting off avenues that the Chinese would use to sort of promote their ideas about economic governance or political governance as we enter into a period that Jude rightly pointed out in which the Chinese are feeling pretty confident about their decisions, both their, you know, their hybrid model of state and market, but more importantly, um, their approach to political governance, a one party system that's all about uh, using the party to uh, increase administrative efficiency as a way to give people sort of a better life. And I think that they feel that they scored some big successes uh, in 2020. Uh, and that's reflected in how positive, I think, middle-class Chinese are feeling about how their government dealt with COVID. In an, and in that kind of environment, I think it makes sense for America to work with democracies um, and uh, uh, in order to sort of short circuit some of these initiatives to promote new and different ideas about economic and political governance. Jude, on, on Belt and Road? Yeah, but if I can throw in a two sentences um, following up on, on what Evan just said, um, and this is where I, I would recommend we take a page from, from uh, Beijing. Um, uh, the discussion in Beijing is not around how do we deal with the America challenge. The discussion in Beijing at a deeper level is about how do we uh, implement our longer term strategic ambitions and our grand strategy, which is about very much the world that China hopes to shape and the role that China want to plays in it. Uh, play in it. I, I think we should take a page out of it. I think Evan was, was saying as much. Um, we should be investing in ad hoc and, and more structural coalitions of democracies, not with the explicit purpose of dealing with China, but to actually just strengthen democratic institutions and a free and open global order, of which dealing with China is a subset of that. But too much of the discussion I feel is about dealing with the China issue. I think we need to do, as Xi Jinping does, have a, have a vision and a grand strategy of which China is a, is a critical component. Maybe it's semantic that, um, but so much of what we're talking about is everything steered towards the China challenge. And I feel like that's a, um, that perverts what should just be a focus on what is the world that, that democracies wanna live in and how do we help shape that? Um, I probably used most of my answer time on that. So I will just say quickly on the ability of self-reflectiveness within China's system here. Um, I'd say the picture is mixed. Um, certainly Beijing is recalibrating the Belt and Road Initiative. I don't think, it, or I should say it's broader state capitalist model of which Belt and Road is an important component. 
I don't think, however, it's because it is getting feedback um, from recipient nations about debtor problems. The single biggest driving restructuring factor in Belt and Road is return on investment. And Beijing, basically Beijing, um, uh, despite growing at likely to be 6%, there has been another paradigm shift in Beijing's external outbound FDI um, 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 framework. And that is Beijing is in a resource scarce mindset now. Um, I think certainly since the global financial crisis, but really the, the Xi Jinping era has brought along with it a recognition that um, the times when Beijing had infinite amounts of capital uh, and FX to be splashing around the world are gone. And so what you have seen, especially since 2015, 2016, with the domestic equity market meltdown is Beijing has now been retooling, rethinking uh, about how it wants to be, to be using capital. It wants to be channeling more of it inward into uh, uh, innovation ecosystems. And whether this is going after or sort of uh, pulling in the leash on, you know, uh, you know, Wandai, HNA, Anbang, and basically saying, you're not gonna be buying bowling alleys in Poughkeepsie, New York anymore, or on the BRI, recognizing that these investments come with risk. And if we're not getting return, it's not a very good bargain to essentially have a, a, a nation indebted with us if we haven't calculated what the ROI on is. So um, I think there is a retooling going on, but it's, it's not because uh, uh, Beijing is, is worried about hurting the feelings of recipient nations. Great, thanks. Uh, so next in the queue, uh, we only have 15 minutes left, I should uh, say, and we've got quite a long queue, but uh, is Nick Timothy, who um, used to be uh, Theresa May's conciliary and has now crossed over to the dark side and joined me as a journalist uh, and a newspaper columnist, Nick. Uh, comment writer, please get in. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, in the West, we spend a lot of time worrying about uh, sort of relative decline in our own weaknesses. But uh, I wondered what the two of you thought about China's own weaknesses and where the pressure points are. They obviously need a quite high economic growth uh, every year. Uh, they, will, they will face their own sort of regional uh, pressures and potential overextensions around the world. So I wanted to a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, just as a framework thought, um, one of the things we need to really start investing in is looking at um, the, the CCP, um, looking at both sides of the ledger. I think a much more calibrated understanding of the sources of resiliency within the system, which, which have continuously frustrated, you know, 15 of the last zero collapses of the political system that, that we, have, we have called over the past four decades. But I agree, um, uh, there are a new set of, uh, I think, fragilities or weaknesses entering into China's system right now. One of the most obvious sort of pressure points we have is um, almost every challenge, domestic challenge that China confronts right now or that the Xi administration is looking at, um, that Xi Jinping sees technology as the answer to getting out of that trap. I don't care what it is you're talking about, urbanization, demographics, productivity, um, Xi Jinping is the ultimate techno-optimist. Um, they see this for geostrategic reasons. They see this for domestic reasons. But as, as you know, uh, Beijing's experience trying to create the C919 through COMAC indicates, um, China is very much uh, dependent on access to outside capital, talent, technology. Um, and most of the good stuff is being created in advanced economies, which happen to be democratic and market-based. This is one where we hold this extraordinary amount of leverage um, and is one of the reasons that the Xi administration is racing towards a, a kind of a, a delusional fantasy of, of self-sufficiency. 
Um, but this is one where Beijing has been, I think, pretty adept at dividing and conquering and critically leveraging its massive domestic market size as, a, as an appetizer or as a tool in its toolkit to try to frustrate any traction that, that coalitions can get to think more strategically about when and where they allow Beijing access uh, to technology. The one final point I'd make on that though is, and, and I think Evan alluded to this when he said we're not looking to contain China, we need to think of ways to um, uh, shape Beijing's behavior, but in ways that, that don't substantively or symbolically make it look like we're trying to shut off 1.4 billion people from reaching a, a level of prosperity and modernity. Um, Beijing has tried to, to link those two and essentially say China and the Communist Party are inseparable. Anything you do to the CCP, you're doing to the Chinese people. Um, I think we need to have a more sophisticated way of responding to that where we're both penalizing bad behavior from the Chinese party state, but not, for example, shutting off doors to prosperity, which would be ethically dubious as well as strategically dubious. Okay. I mean, because time is rushing on, Evan, if you want to respond to that, maybe fold it into the next response. Uh, let me now call upon uh, Bill Esterson, who's a, who's a Labour MP, um, who uh, will pose the next question. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, fascinating discussion. You, you just got me thinking about CPTPP. The UK government stated its intention to or desire to join. Um, we've heard some interest about the US doing so and potentially about China. Um, what's the significance of all of that um, speculation or is it, is it just noise? Uh, where might it lead to? So I'll Evan, take that one. Spend a lot of time on that. Um, yeah. So um, first, uh, the, the fact that the Chinese announced that they're interested in CPTPP is enormously important, and it should be seen as sort of a part of a package of um, economic moves by China with strategic significance. Joining RCEP, announcing that they're going to interested in joining CPTPP in the future, and then um, signing the investment agreement with the EU. Right. It's all about reducing its exposure and vulnerability to the United States uh, and showing that it has lots of alternative options. Um, and in particular, uh, the combination of RCEP and CPTPP only puts the Chinese economy more at the center and increases the strategic alignment of uh, economies, leaders, <clears throat> and uh, consumers in Asia with China. And so that's why I think uh, Britain joining the CPTPP is an incredibly important move. I hope you move in that direction. Because the key thing about CPTPP is it's not just about bringing down tariffs for exports, as important as that is. CPTPP has a variety of rules uh, or disciplines related to things like state-owned enterprises, related to things like government procurement that are all about raising the standards for accountability and transparency and ultimately how market economies should operate. And so by Britain joining, what that does is it expands the world of CPTPP. And you know, for the Chinese to make it into CPTPP would be hard. They would have to adopt and implement a variety of pretty significant um, reforms that would move them away from some of the most distortive economic practices that they engage in right now. So, you know, to me, Boris Johnson's move to towards CPTPP, his effort to grow economic links with, uh, you know, India are really smart strategic moves to suggest to China that Britain has alternatives and that, you know, Chinese coercion against, you know, Britain 
uh, just pushes Britain into new and interesting directions, full stop. I suppose there's no chance that the US itself will join CPTPP, I mean, having helped to design it. That, that's too, off the table. Too, early, too early to tell. I mean, politically, it's hard and difficult. Um, let, let's see how the Biden administration unfolds. Okay. Uh, now, uh, Jonathan Janguli, MP. I think his mic will be being turned on as we speak. Can you, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yes. So th uh, thank you very much. Um, um, for this question, um, that there is uh, a Western uh, stroke democratic coalition built against uh, China. If that were to happen, would China be able to reciprocate with its own coalition? And what are the chances of a new um, Cold War coming up, coming up as a result? Um, well, I, thank you very much. It's a great question. I'll, I'll give a few uh, uh, starting thoughts. Um, Beijing has always had a, a, a quite a thinness of partnerships that it can draw on that are as substantive and as sticky as can the United States and the UK and other democratic system, which are bound together um, by a number of factors, of course, at the center of which is a shared understanding or, or relatively shared understanding about the world they would like to live in. Beijing, of course, having only one formal ally and not a particularly reliable one, has relied mostly on um, the checkbook and um, coercion to be able to draw countries in line. And what that means is um, whenever it is able to form a sort of a de facto grouping, it's relatively thin, unstable, and to me, quite fragile. So this is one I think we just have not been putting our best foot forward and, and I'm, the outgoing administration in the United States has a lot to blame for that among other factors. But this to me is where really the investments need to be made on um, drawing together and leveraging the extraordinary strengths that market-based democracies have that we have just been um, laying by the wayside. And again, we'll, we'll put enough blame on the United States for that. Um, we have a strategic advantage over Beijing and our ability to pull together ad hoc and enduring coalitions and, and partnerships that they just don't have. Um, Beijing is very much alone in the world, um, and especially so when you remove the checkbook. One additional point. I think it's, um, it's pretty clear that there is an emerging competition of uh, values, ideals, and perhaps even ideologies between uh, the United States or the West and China. But I think it's important to keep in mind that this is not going to be Cold War-like in the sense of Block A and Block B, but rather we should think about it as um, shifting coalitions of the willing on distinct issues. So on the Hong Kong issue, as I mentioned, American Commonwealth countries, right? On the Xinjiang issue, perhaps it could be those and others, right? On certain technology issues that touch on how democracies operate. Uh, you may have a different coalition. So I think it's important to think in terms of a different model than, was, than existed during the Cold War and that it would shift and change over time. Participation and, and the actions undertaken um, would essentially be different. And that flexibility I think is an advantage uh, that'd be, make it very difficult for Beijing to respond to. 
Okay, we've just got about five minutes left, uh, but Ian Mukherjee, who's next, has quite a direct question, which and also quite a, an interesting one. Ian, uh, are you on? The yeah, line? can you can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, you know, as we've discussed, it's been um, you know an aggressive year from Beijing. If you look at Hong Kong and actions against the Uyghurs, which we all know. Should the West boycott the Winter Olympics uh, coming up to send a direct message to Beijing that we, we can't tolerate this kind of behavior? So my view is um, the US and democracies globally need to have this conversation, absolutely. Um, because what the Chinese have done in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs is an affront to basic principles and values that we believe in. Um, but boycotts only work if they're universal or near universal. And you know, if you just have a few countries here or there willing to um, run against Beijing on this, then it's not likely to be effective. But I think this is absolutely a conversation that democracies, not just the West, but democracies globally need to begin having with one another. Jude, do you have a thought on that one? Yeah, I, I, I see this, especially after the formal designation of genocide um, and, and maybe slight, seeing it slightly differently than Evan, um, which is refreshing for once because we've just been agreeing so much, it's been uninteresting. Um, I, I think even if the United States alone boycotts the Olympics, that would be an extraordinarily powerful symbolic and substantive move I, I don't see, you know, we boycotted before for very important reasons in ways that um, um, I think stand the test of time. If China was a um, middling power with a small population, this would be a no brainer. It wouldn't have gotten a second Olympics. Um, um, so really the reason this is giving us pause is because the cost associated with both in financial costs, but also in terms of some of the other traction we wanna get with China on climate, some of these other challenges is, is giving us pause and that's fine, that's good. We should be thinking about second and third order effects and unintended consequences. We have just made an official determination whether or not you agree with the outgoing administration, the US State Department has officially designated what's going on in, in Xinjiang as genocide. The Biden administration and, and uh, the incoming secretary of state has affirmed that. I don't know how you go to send your athletes to Olympics where there's a genocide going on so this would be one, even if the United States were out alone on this, um, I think this, this would be an, an important step for us to take. That's a very interesting thought uh, on which to end. Let me just end by look, thanking you, Jude and Evan, but also let me give uh, Tom Tugendhat, that was after all the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, the chance to thank you in person and perhaps with some thoughts of your own, Tom. Well, look, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there, but I have to say the, the, uh, the answer on, um, uh, on going to genocidal states for uh, sporting events, I think is going to be a challenge that's just going to grow and grow as the evidence mounts. But that's that's my own personal opinion when I asked the Prime Minister about it uh, in the Liaison Committee about four or five months ago, no, maybe a bit less. We didn't get quite such a clear answer, um, and uh, but I'm sure Gideon will be more surprised than anybody by that. Um, May I just say thank you enormously to Gideon for hosting this. Uh, I think the level of questioning has been fantastic. And we've seen that in the responses we've got. Um, I don't know whether you guys will get the call from the uh, new administration, but wherever you, uh, wherever you continue working, we do very much hope that you will keep in touch with us at the China Research Group here 
uh, in the UK and that we'll be able to call on you again. This is only going to grow as an issue. And so uh, to everybody who's interested, please do sign up to our newsletter. Um, we, uh, I think Bill Bishop is on, and so I, I must pay huge homage uh, to the, the man from whom we uh, drew such inspiration and his Sinocism newsletter is absolutely brilliant. And you should sign up for that too. Um, but it's, uh, but please do, uh, thanks Bill, but you should definitely, uh, definitely come to more events. They are all public, they are all free, and they are all online. So to Gideon, to Jude, to Evan, thank you very much indeed. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.